You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. On the uh, first occasion when I came here uh, and arrived into the church, I was greatly taken by, uh, if you want to call it, the, the architecture of the church here. Uh, recognizing that uh, probably this has been a, an older building, but at a certain stage not so very long ago, within uh, memory even of some of the children, that there was some work done and uh, changes were made to the interior of the church building. Obviously, when I was in uh, Le Comfort uh, as well, I noticed that uh, over the past uh, few months and even couple of years, uh, scaffolding went up and uh, Steelwork went up and a new hall was added to, to the existing property there. And in any church, when a building project goes on, there is, when it is completed, a certain degree of excitement and encouragement and enthusiasm and an anticipation as to how the new facilities, whatever they happen to be, will be able to be used And in one sense, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem that we read about this evening was a time when there was going to be, after they were rebuilt, encouragement and enthusiasm and anticipation. The background to the story of this building project is relatively simple, and we read it this evening. Nehemiah was a trusted servant. He was the cupbearer to to the then Persian king, a man called Artaxerxes. And in the book that bears the name of Nehemiah, we read that Nehemiah was disturbed in his spirit. Years earlier, the great King Solomon, who was king of Israel, had allowed things to slip. And unfortunately, he had been dethroned and the kingdom was split in two. It was divided between the north and the south. And both kingdoms were characterized by idolatry and insecurity. God's judgment fell upon the northern kingdom, and it was taken over by people called the Assyrians. Then the southern kingdom was taken over initially by the Babylonians, and then by the Medes and the Persians. And after a period of time when the people had been dispersed here, there, and yonder, different groups of Israelite people drifted back to Canaan. And reports came to Nehemiah that the ecclesiastical capital, which was, of course, Jerusalem, itself was in ruins, and its walls had been razed to the ground. Now, in some respects, these broken-down walls Uh, not only symbolized the destruction that there was within Jerusalem at that particular time, but it also was a commentary on the spiritual disintegration uh, that was reflected in Israelite communities and culture at that particular time. And it was this that primarily caused the disturbance within the spirit of Nehemiah. And without going into detail, remember what we read this evening, Nehemiah prayed for guidance, and the upshot was that he would return to Jerusalem and he would spearhead the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And with a small band of trusted individuals, he went out and assessed the damage and prescribed the remedy and returned 
And because of the obvious good relationship that he had with the king at that particular time, the king granted him leave of absence and facilitated him in every way as to be able to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild its walls and get the job complete. And of course, in addition to that, letters were given, as we read, from the king to his foresters, and these were passed on to those who were responsible for the king's forest, and he, the foresters uh, provided all sorts of uh, necessary timber in order for the job to be completed. And when all the preparations were made and the work was due to start, we read that the Jews, their priests and their nobles, we see that they took the plans and the response was clear. And we read this in Nehemiah 1, let us start rebuilding. There was what we might call a positive response to the negative situation that needed to be changed at that particular time. And this is the background to the story that we read together from the book of Nehemiah this evening. Now, I want us to look uh, primarily at three areas that led to the success of the building program and try to apply that in some sort of a way to church life. I suppose we can look first of all at what we would call the principle of coordination. And surely this is necessary in every building project, whether you decide to, to start building a house yourself or whatever, uh, there needs to be a coordinated approach to uh, any building project. There needs to be a vision, followed by organization, planning, and then coordinating the work, getting the different people to be involved in different things. And the work needed to be accomplished in an orderly manner. When the church hall, for example, at Le Comfort was being put up, I used to drive past on, on my way uh, uh, to, through to, to Cookstown on a couple of a number of occasions, in fact. Uh, and the first thing that one of the first things that I saw was was the steelwork went up. When I, the steelwork, of course, it went up before the bricks were laid, and the bricks had to go up before the plastering was done. The plastering had to be done before the painting was done. There was a, an order in which things were done. And in any project, architects and people need to start with their plans and so on and so forth. So let's for a moment try and picture the situation that Nehemiah faced. Jerusalem had a wall right round it. And it had been stormed by the enemies. It had been knocked down. It was in rubble. It was a bit unfortunately like some of the pictures that we're seeing as we watch our television screens with regard to Ukraine, where places and buildings have just been devastated and they're a pile of rubble. And that was the situation in Jerusalem at that particular time. And if you can picture a wall, as it were, around the city, like every area, there was a north side, a south side, an east side, and a west side. And different groups of people were initially required to build at different sections of the wall. And Nehemiah chapter 3, if we had time to read it, it tells us of how individual groups were put at certain places around the wall. And it's very interesting to, to notice how it was done. Family groups worked together. Now, where did the family groups work? Well, we're told in the scriptures that people would be highly motivated if they worked outside their own house. So you can imagine if there was a bit of the wall outside your house, 
well, why travel to the far side of the uh, city to build when you could do it at your own house? And what would be the benefit of that? Well, since this wall was also being built for security, you would want to make sure that the bit that you did in front of your own house was properly accomplished and properly done. It would also save traveling time. You wouldn't have to go from one place to another. Food would be readily available to you as you would be near your own house and when food was necessary, it would be provided. And there was some opposition when this particular job started and therefore people could protect and defend their own homes. So there was a, a real logic behind people working where they were asked to work. But then, of course, there were people who lived in the country. They were outside the city. And what did they do? Well, again, people put their brains into gear and said, well, there are certain places in the walls, around the walls, where there's no houses opposite them. So the people who are in the country, well, they can travel in and they can build in those areas where there's no houses, where there are no people locally to be able to do it. So it was really a highly organized and coordinated effort as a result of a strategic plan on the part of Nehemiah. Jesus Christ has given to his church a strategic plan. And what is that plan? That plan is to build his kingdom in order to effect his glory. And that plan was initially outlined to the disciples. It's recorded in each of the Gospels and also in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's usually in the same wording, or near enough the same wording, but let me quote one of them. What is it that Jesus said to his disciples? Go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples and be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, start where you are and go to the ends of the earth. But starting where you are is basically starting in your own backyard. And in the early church, isn't that exactly what the Christians did? They started to witness in their own areas, in their own, at their own homes, in the non-Christian constituencies around them. And so much so that what did the non-Christians say of the Christian people? They said, see how these Christians love one another. And the strategic plan to take the gospel elsewhere was also seen in the Antioch church when Paul and Barnabas, two highly respected Christians within their particular uh, fellowship, they, the church said, right, we've, we're planning and we're doing what we can uh, locally, but we need to expand our work a bit further. And so they designated that Paul and Barnabas would go out as their, if you want to call it, local missionaries. They would support them, they would encourage them as they would go to different places. And so a coordinated and strategic plan unfolded. And this biblical principle must be replicated, surely, in the church today. And we need to ask ourselves the question. Just as Nehemiah had a vision for the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, do you have a vision, a strategy, in your mind, in respect of the local area in which you live, the family to which you belong, and maybe eventually wider work uh, as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. Have we got a vision? And that's something we need to ask ourselves 
within the church. Because too often, uh, we lurch along as Christians, and we just say, well, we'll come to church on a Sunday, and uh, we'll do our bit on a Sunday, and then we go away, and do we really have a vision for the lost? There's a, a well-known, I've maybe quoted it before, a well-known uh, children's, uh, is it a nursery rhyme? Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to visit the Queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what did you do there? I chased a little mouse under the chair. Where did the cat go? It went to London. What did it go to London for? To visit the Queen. What did it do when it was in London? It chased a mouse under the chair. What was the cat's problem when it got there? The cat lost its focus. And it deflected from the real purpose of its visit. And so often is it true to say within the church that we can lose the focus of trying to coordinate our evangelistic strategy in order to reach other people. And we can lose our focus by being immersed in other things which we may consider to be important, but they're very much secondary to working for the extension of Christ's kingdom. There was the principle, first and foremostly, of coordination. It was organized. Then, secondly, there was the principle of cooperation. When the challenge was put to the people, what, what did they do? They said, let us arise and build. And they responded by translating these particular words into action. Community officials, heads of the home, they took a lead. And the people used the talents and skills that they had in a united spirit of significant cooperation. People of all ages, if you read on through this particular story, from all walks of life, there were the priests and the goldsmiths, the perfumers, the temple servants, the merchants, and whole families. They worked together. Yes, there were a few exceptions. We read that the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Why they didn't, we're not told. But despite this hiccup, the work went on. And this was the exception to the rule. And Nehemiah did not allow those who were being negative to frustrate or to interfere with his motivation to complete the task that he had in hand. And soon the job was eventually completed with virtually everybody cooperating with remarkable enthusiasm. And surely this is a picture of what the church should be. The New Testament describes the church as the body of Christ. And a body, as we all know, has different constituent parts working together for the benefit of the whole. And Paul urges the church to grow and build itself up as each part does its work. Think of your own body and think of how that your eyes focus on on something you've got to do, and because your eyes are operating, then you're able to use your hands to do whatever is necessary. And you maybe need your legs to go and do a certain work, but the whole body operates together. 
And this illustration in Jerusalem of people working together is so important when we seek to build a spiritual house, a local fellowship for the kingdom of God. All of us must participate. And just as the various trades came together in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, leading to the completion of the job, so for the church to grow, there must be a unity of purpose, a spirit of cooperation, using each skill and resource that we have, not only for our own, but for everybody's benefit. And of course, we read, as I said earlier, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work. And this must have been somewhat of a frustration to those who were working hard at the coal face. And we see that as time went on, there was opposition from three fairly prominent characters who clearly didn't want to see this work complete and the walls rebuilt. Dare I suggest that churches today do not need this type of negativity and unbiblical attitude and contribution as was seen by these particular characters any more than any of us need a sore head. And it's important that all of us become workers within the fellowship of the church and I have a chief desire to give and serve wholeheartedly. And there was another area that we could look at before we come to our final conclusions. There was the principle of coordination, there was the principle of cooperation, and thirdly, there was the principle of commendation. This was another quality that Nehemiah, in the management of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, certainly encouraged. In chapter 3, uh, it's more implied than stated, but in this chapter, Nehemiah mentions 75 people by name. Let me give you a wee bit of advice. If you're ever asked to do a reading in church and you're asked to read Nehemiah chapter 3, refuse to do it. <laughs> because there are so many awkward words through the names of these 75 individual characters. But not only is there 75 individual characters, but he mentions 15 groups. This indicating that Nehemiah took a personal interest in all the people who were contributing. And in verse 20 of chapter 3, there's an interesting statement. And this is it. Barak, son of Zabel, zealously prepared another section. This man, for some reason, we're not told exactly why, he was singled out. And he obviously stood head and shoulders above others. Possibly he worked overtime. Possibly he worked harder and faster than others. Possibly he worked around the clock, we don't know, but he was singled out and commended for special mention. I heard of a, a team that's going away from here in the summer. Uh, I was involved quite a, a number of years in going with teams from our congregation to, uh, to, this, to the country of Malawi. And on the first occasion we were going out, we, we went out in order to to help the, the local people start to build a, a church, to build a meeting house. And we all rolled up our sleeves and got involved. There were about 10 of us, 
and there were a multitude of people from the local church came to give help. But there was one guy who I always said could have done the work of about five people. And he worked zealously and enthusiastically. If anything ran out, if you needed an extra spade or a wheelbarrow or something, he was the one who you would ask to go and get it. He just was head and shoulders above everybody else, not necessarily in size, but as far as his work ethic was concerned. And so often within the church, isn't that a, a picture of certain people? Uh, I, I know a particular congregation where I have some close association, and there's one man in particular, and I always say he does far more work even than the minister does. And he just works day and night, from early morning to late at night, every day. Now he's retired and he can give of his time, but he is someone who is in that particular category. And he ought to be commended, not that he's looking for commendation. But in the New Testament, we're told that to commend people for their work is something that is appropriate. Barnabas, for example, stands out as a classic example of a New Testament Christian who was a great encourager. In fact, his name means son of encouragement. The apostle Andrew was another great encourager. It was he who brought his brother Peter to Jesus. It was he who encouraged the boy to give his pack lunch to Jesus, and he was able to multiply it to feed the 5,000. And it was he who brought a group of people who Philip didn't know what to do with and who wanted to see Jesus. And Andrew said to Philip, come on with me, and we'll bring these people and introduce them to Jesus. Encouragement, surely, is a vital Christian responsibility. And to fail to encourage is to direct, directly disobey a specific command of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5, therefore encourage one another and build one another up. Tell me this evening, are you an encourager? Not all of us, as I'll maybe say in a moment, can be upfront people. Not all of us can play instruments in the praise group. Not all of us can be elders within the church. Not all of us can be Sunday school teachers. Not all of us can do many of the things that other people in the church do, but there's no reason why every one of us shouldn't be an encourager. Seek to encourage those who are leading the church at this particular time, particularly in the absence of a minister. And seek to encourage the elders by praying for them and those who are involved as uh, the church life is reopened after the lockdown of the past couple of years. Let's be encouragers. And so we've looked at this passage, and we've looked at the principle of coordination, organizing the work, cooperation, people working together, and commendation, encouraging one another. And therefore, what should be our goal within the church? What should be our goal for the future? Yes, there was going to be fresh beginnings as far as the building of the walls of Jerusalem were concerned. Once they were up again, there was going to be a new start. And surely we want to look in our lives at this time, when we have been released, as it were, from uh, having to stay at home, having to not do as much as we'd want to do about the church, having everything opening up again. 
we want to surely use the opportunity afforded to us and also the possibility of the beginning of a new ministry, hopefully quite soon. We want to use these God-given opportunities of new starts as a time when we ourselves become encouragers and workers for the kingdom of God. John's Gospel tells us, to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, to give him the right to become the children of God. Are we God's children? And if we're God's children, then are we involved in his service? Because as God's children, we have the responsibility to share the good news of the gospel. In the book of Psalms, we read that the heavens declare the glory of God. God's existence is seen in the created world and the universe that he has made. The New Testament tells us that God's glory is displayed in the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now his glory is displayed in our world through his church and through the lives of individual Christians. And therefore, what does that mean? Well, it means that as Christians, we need to get up and get on. And we need not major on the non-essentials of church life, as so often can be the case within various fellowships. I wasn't going to tell this story, but I'll do it. Uh, and uh, you'll probably not identify where I'm talking about. But uh, I, I, I was brought up in a congregation of some... Uh, 800 families or so. It was a very large church, and the uh, it was in a town where people were moving during the, the troubles into the town away from other places, uh, and there was a large factory built, uh, probably now identified for some of you where it was, but there was a large factory built, and people were coming from, from England and from different places, and there was a lot of new people coming into the church. In fact, over a period of of maybe about five or six years, there was a, an additional 300 families or so joined the church. And uh, on a Sunday morning, there were about 350 young people or children at, at, at Sunday school and at Bible class. But at that particular time, uh, there were quite a number of us as, I suppose, in our late teens. And we believed that God was calling us into the ministry. Uh, I say there was, there was at least... Uh, three or four of us. One of them was, was here last Sunday night, uh, uh, Eddie Kirk. He, he, he was one of them. Uh, the only difference between Eddie and me is I come in time. But we were brought up together uh, in, in, in the church. And at that time, we decided that, you know, if we're going to be ministers, we need to see how people react and act in the church. And so we'll observe how things go and uh, what people do and what people say and all the rest of it. Uh, and, and we discovered that there were two groups of people in the church. Uh, as, as all these people were coming into the church, new people, and there were many of them were Christians and they wanted to get involved, uh, the, the, the hole wasn't big enough really for the youth work that was being done, etc., etc., and they decided to build a new hall. And there was a group of, of men who had really not very much interest in the church, I have to say. 
And they wanted to have a significant input into the church, into the clans. They wanted the hole to be a certain size in order to facilitate uh, four widths for bowling mats. We observed those people. Well, we, we then observed that there were, and uh, in, in the kitchen, when the hole was eventually built and the we went to the youth club and we played football and we sweated and did all sorts of things and then we had to go into the kitchen to get a drink of water. We discovered that there was one cupboard and in that cupboard was the PW cups. And in the other cupboard was the bowling cups. And in the other cupboard was the cups for the senior citizens. And then there was this other cupboard and we were told to use their, those cups. They were the broken cups uh, and, and they weren't very healthy. And the cracks and all were in them, and well, that was what we were to do, and not to touch these, these other cups. And then when we, we didn't follow those particular arrangements, they put locks in the cupboards of the other places so that we couldn't get them. And then when it came to harvest, and there was the, the decorating of the church, when I, now these new people were coming, and they wanted to help, but no, no, don't go near the pulpit, because... There's two women and they decorate that, uh, they decorate the pulpit and you wouldn't want to offend them. Uh, you, you people can do the brushing up afterwards, but let these people do what they've always done. There was that sort of group of people in the church. And then there was another group. They would come along to prayer meeting. They would have encouraged the young people. They would have thought, how best can we reach the new people who are coming, and how can we get them involved in the church? How can we go out and be involved in, in evangelistic outreach? And we ask ourselves the question, which of those two groups were cultivating fellowship and encouragement within the church? And I'll not insult your intelligence to ask you which of those two groups was the answer to that particular question. But so often, isn't it true to say that at times in church life, we can major on things that are trivial and miss the important. And as Christians, we're called to be salt and light, to bring the message of the gospel into the darkness of the world. Someone once said this, that if meat is rotten, you don't blame the meat. You must ask the question, where is the salt? And if a house is in darkness, there's no point in blaming the house. You ask, where is the light? And if society is corrupt and dark, the question needs to be asked is, where is the Christian and where is the message? Some people say, but I don't have the education or expertise or ability to be an effective witness. Well, God doesn't expect us to put a lake into a bucket. He expects us to use the expertise that we have, whatever that may be, however little we may feel it is, or great, for his glory and for the extension of his kingdom. We should be motivated to be witnesses, to cooperate, to coordinate, and to commend. Isaiah writes, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's the problem. He was wounded for our transgressions. That's the remedy. And Jesus Christ has commanded us to go into the world and preach the gospel. And the world starts, as I've already said, 
in our own backyard. Nehemiah, motivated, encouraged, commanded the people, and they responded effectively. And the walls were rebuilt. There was enthusiasm and there was excitement. And surely that can be replicated when the fellowship here, individual Christians seek to reach out with the gospel, focusing on what Jesus wants us to do, and then we can be his witnesses wherever we happen to be. Let us pray.